you'll open your Bibles to Romans chapter 12, we'll be continuing our sermon uh, through the book of Romans this morning. In Romans 12, 12, we have a description of the normal Christian life. This is what every Christian should look like when Paul writes, rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer. And before we started Advent stuff, we looked at the first phrase there in verse 12, rejoicing in hope. Today we're going to look at the next two phrases, and I don't know about you, but over the years I've met some Christians who think God is supposed to protect them from all, kind of, all problems, and they'll think or they'll say sometimes, I just don't understand while I'm going through all of this. I read my Bible, I pray, I obey God's commands, why does he allow all these awful things to come into my life? And their expectation is that being a Christian is somehow supposed to exempt them from trouble and tribulation and suffering. Uh, quite frankly, I don't know what Bible they're reading from because the Bible I read from tells us that we should expect that. That is part of life. And as you think about it, people in the Bible, Job was the most righteous man on earth in his day. Look how he had to suffer. What about David, a man after God's own heart? He spent years of his life running from King Saul. Daniel, a faithful prophet, and yet was thrown into a lion's den. Uh, Jesus said that John the Baptist was the greatest man ever born, and yet he was imprisoned and beheaded. Paul, one of the most bold witnesses for Jesus who has ever lived, but he was lied about, he was beaten, he was jailed, he was stoned, he was shipwrecked, and more and more. As a matter of fact, Paul told new believers in Acts 14, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And when Peter wrote to believers who were enduring horrible persecution, he told them, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exultation. James, Jesus' brother, put it this way, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Suffering, tribulation, and trials are part of life. Think of Jesus, the sinless Son of God. Did he suffer? Yes. And if he suffered so horribly, why should we think we are exempt, especially since the Bible tells us time and time again that we should expect trials and tribulations. What did Jesus say in Matthew 24? He told his disciples, they will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you, and you will be hated by all nations because of my name. You know, the Bible never promises Christians a trouble-free life. That's not what the Bible says. It tells us just the opposite. We can expect tribulation, and trials and suffering. And so now Paul in Romans 12 tells us we must persevere in tribulation. Let's pray together before we look at this closer. Father, we come before you this morning thanking you that you are sovereign, you are in control of all things. And Father, that uh, the suffering and the tribulations and the trials that come into each of our lives, you know all about. And Father, you have a purpose and a reason for them. And as you have taught us in your scripture, you can even turn them for our good in conforming us to the image of Christ. So as we look at these two short phrases this morning, we pray that you would speak to us, convict us where necessary, 
allow us to persevere in tribulation. Uh, in the year ahead, let us be devoted to prayer. We ask these things in your name. Amen. So here in, in, in Romans, in the context of loving one another, and you remember that's how Romans 12 begins, uh, as we serve the Lord, Paul tells us how we're to endure tribulation. He, he says, rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer. So before I even go any further, ask yourself, do those three phrases describe me? And to the extent where we fall short of these qualities, we have room to grow. And just as a reminder, once again, the commands that we're reading here, the commands of verses 9 through 21 through the end of the chapter, are built upon the first two verses of this chapter. Remember what it says in Romans 12, 1 and 2? Therefore, because of everything Paul has written up to this point, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Everything Paul writes here assumes that you have personally experienced the many mercies of God that he has spelled out in length in chapters 1 through 11. We have to come to God as a guilty sinner. We have to receive his forgiveness and his pardon. We have to receive the redemption that's offered through faith in Jesus Christ alone. And then we should desire to grow in these qualities because we have received God's mercies given to us in Christ Jesus that were shown to us while we were yet sinners. And so with that, once again, as a basic overview and review, Paul tells us that the mercies of God call us to a joyful, prayerful perseverance in times of trial. Martin Lloyd-Jones put it this way, tribulation, hope, and prayer always go together in the New Testament. And it's a very good way of testing ourselves to ask whether they always go together in our experience. They should, end quote. Just because we've experienced God's mercies that he's given to us through Jesus Christ doesn't mean we're exempt from trials and tribulations. Suffering, tribulation, is the normal experience of believers in this life. And God uses those times in our lives to, to, to drive us to prayer, uh, to drive us to a deeper dependence on him, to conform us to the image of his son so that he is glorified through it. So, the mercies of God call us to persevere in tribulation. Persevering isn't simply gritting your teeth and grimly enduring it. That's not what it means. Rejoicing in hope is how you persevere in tribulation. You know, Paul's commands here, they're all intertwined and interrelated. They go together. The Greek word translated tribulation means pressure. Our, our English word comes from the Latin word tribulum. Anyone know what a tribulum is? It's what they would grind corn on, okay? So it has the idea of bringing pressure upon something. And the word persevering comes from the Greek verb meaning to remain steadfast, to stand your ground, to bear up under a situation. And oftentimes when we're in a time of testing and trial and tribula tribulation, we pray for relief from that, don't we? Yes. And that's not necessarily wrong. But what did Paul pray? He prayed that believers would be strengthened with God's power so that they could endure the trials with joy and thankfulness. And we read in Colossians 1, For this reason also, 
Since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Why? So that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience. That's kind of like perseverance, right? joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of saints in light. You know, you don't need to persevere. You don't need to be steadfast unless you're going through tough, tough times. It's easy to persevere when everything's going right. It's not really persevering. It's just enjoying life, right? But when times go bad, you have to persevere through it. So, so our experience of God's power isn't necessarily to deliver us from the trial, but to allow us to go through it joyfully with thankful hearts as we persevere. And the matter of fact, as we've seen already this morning, suffering and tribulation is the calling of every Christian. You know, suffering and trials, it's like a doorway that you cannot go around. You have to go through it. What does Paul say in Philippians? For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. So, so very briefly, here are some basic truths about suffering, and we all suffer. First of all, we don't suffer as much as we could or probably should suffer. We deserve much worse than we get. Secondly, we don't suffer nearly as much as our Savior suffered, and he was totally innocent. Uh, compared to the examples throughout church history, uh, you know, you read of Christians being sewn up in, in skins and thrown to the lions. You, uh, our suffering seems very minor compared to some of those others. And oftentimes our suffering is not for the sake of righteousness, but it's simply part of living in a fallen, sinful world. Sometimes it's a result of our poor decision-making that we suffer. But the point, the fact is, all Christians suffer for Christ. And sometimes it's relatively small things like enduring gossip, or, or maybe mistreatment uh, and you don't retaliate, or, or persevering in a different calling in a, in a difficult situation. But sometimes it's much more severe. But whatever it is, inevitably, in one way or another, the door of tribulation opens in your life, and God calls you to walk through it. And in that moment, one of the most helpful things is to remember what's on the other side of that door, Okay. Suffering for Christ is not a dead end. There is a purpose. There is a plan for it always, although it doesn't always feel that way, does it? It's a doorway to greater joy, to growing in Christ, uh, and God teaches us and refines us during the times of trouble and tribulation. And we can persevere, Paul says, in hope because we know what the future holds for us as Christians. We can patiently Excuse me, we can patiently endure pain, rejection, trials, and tribulation because that is not the end of the story. Someday there will be eternal victory with Christ. And that can give us joy and the strength to persevere and endure the pressure in the here and now. So the Bible teaches us that suffering with Christ always will lead to glorification with Him. Paul said back in Romans chapter 8, verse 17, we suffer with him, that is Jesus, why? So that we may also be glorified with him. And as you think of Jesus' life, it's the resurrection from the dead 
that is the ultimate assurance that suffering is not a dead end. Jesus suffered and rose again. It means to us what's on the other side of that door of suffering is a blessing we could never get except through that trial. Uh, Jesus' resurrection means that not only does God meet us in the suffering, but he can redeem that suffering and make it good for us. So, so, so that as we go through that suffering, we can look ahead that there is a purpose, there is a plan. God knows what he's doing. He will see us through. Uh, the resurrection of Jesus means we can walk into that doorway with hope, not with fear. Paul warned once again in Philippians, in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. Peter said, do not fear their intimidation. Do not be troubled. Suffering Tribulation is normal, but there's a purpose to it. It's not a dead end. Peter writes, Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. So I would sum, sum up this like this. Tribulation, troubles, trials, calamity, conflict, cancer, persecution, death, and everything in between are all normal conditions of life in this fallen world. We are not promised that we're going to escape them. But as we just celebrated, Jesus Christ, God in the human flesh, has come. He lived a sinless life. He has broken into our tribulation. He has taken it upon himself. He carried our sin. He bore our curse. He absorbed God's wrath, and he has become our righteousness. He conquered death and hell and Satan. He's opened the door of paradise for all who trust in him. And it's in that hope that we can rejoice with joy unutterable and full of glory. We can do that now in spite of and even because of our tribulations. Because they drive, uh, as we go through that looking to Christ, it drives the joy down into our very heart, into our very soul. And it's in this joy we endure with Jesus in all the sacrifices that he's made for us. So Paul says, not only can you rejoice in hope, you're to persevere in tribulation, expect it, endure it, learn from it, and keep moving. And then he goes on and tells us that God's mercies also call us to be devoted to prayer. Our trials, our tribulations, often drive us to our knees, do they not? I think that's one of the purposes of them. I do. Uh, you've probably had the same experiences I've had in life where, you know, life's going well and you just kind of go through your prayer list as kind of a routine, but then a trial or a tribulation or a suffering hits and all of a sudden you're praying fervently and passionately and time and time and time again. I'm not alone in that, am I? And the more intense the suffering or the trial, the more intensely we pray. And as you think about the trial, as it pops up in your mind and, uh, from time to time throughout the day, you cry out to God for help continually. Prayer, talking with God, is the lifeline that lays hold of the living God to supply our needs during times of tribulation. Being devoted to prayer is the only way that we can rejoice in hope and persevere in tribulation. But with that being said, those three words, devoted to prayer, probably raise more guilt in Christians than almost any other subject in the Bible. Why do I say that? How many of you say, I am devoted to prayer? Yeah. You know, and then you read of people like Martin Luther, who, who, who one time he said he was so busy, he could not help himself but devote four hours to prayer before he began his day. 
I don't know about you, but that drives me further under a pile of guilt. Um, and I feel inadequate in my prayer life. And so my goal this morning is not to make you feel guilty. Guilt is a horrible motivator, okay? I don't want you to feel guilty. I hope that this will be practical and will motivate you by God's grace to become more devoted to or constant in prayer. So Paul is telling us the mercies of God, all God has done for us in chapters 1 through 11, call us to be devoted to prayer as we communicate with him. And devoted means to adhere to, to persist in, to hold fast to something. And as you read through the early church, as they waited for that promised day of Pentecost, we read, these all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer. Later, Luke sums up the activities of the Jerusalem church. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. When the apostles in Acts 6 wanted to find faithful men to take care of the problem meeting the needs of the widows, they explained, we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Paul instructed the Ephesians, with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. In Colossians 4, he writes, devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. And although he doesn't use the same word, he expresses the same thought, the same concept in 1 Thessalonians 5.17, where he simply says, pray without ceasing. And the word translated without ceasing there was used of a hacking cough to bring it to life. You've all had that hacking cough, right? It never ceases. It's always there. It does not mean that prayer is all you do. We don't sit and pray 24 hours a day. That's not what he's saying. Uh, if you're devoted to prayer, uh, think of it this way. If you're devoted to your spouse, does that mean you spend 24 hours a day with your spouse? They'll kill you if you do, okay? No, it doesn't mean that. But it means all of your life is affected because you are devoted to your spouse. So, so the idea isn't we pray every waking minute, but that we keep coming back to prayer time and time and time again. We're to be relentless in prayer. Think of it this way. I don't know about you, but I am relentless in uh, eating and sleeping. We should be relentless in prayer as well, just like we are in those things. So, so prayer isn't to be just a little part of our lives where, where the extent of our prayer is to bless our food before the meal or, or pray with our kids as we tuck them into bed. It should be more than that. Prayer is to permeate all of life. It, it means there's going to be a pattern of prayer that looks like devotion to prayer. Okay, And that's not going to look the same for everyone. For Martin Luther, it might be four hours a day in prayer, but that's probably not the case for us. Uh, but it will be something significant. Being devoted to prayer looks different from not being devoted to prayer. Okay, is that safe to say? They look different, and God knows the difference. So let me ask you, is there a pattern of praying in your life that can be fairly called being devoted to prayer? And I think most of us would agree on some kinds of praying that would not be called devoted to prayer. If you only pray when a crisis enters your life, you're not devoted to prayer. Uh, if you pray only at a meal times, that's your pattern, but that's not being devoted to prayer. Uh, a short, now I lay me down to sleep before you fall asleep at night, is not being devoted to prayer. Hit and miss, help me, Lord, find a parking space, that's not being devoted to prayer. Uh, you know, all those things are fine, but I think we'd all agree that Paul expects something more than those things. Something different from us when he says we should be devoted to prayer. What should we pray about? Anything and everything. 
Okay? Being devoted to prayer is one of those commands that we're never going to be able to check off our list and say, I've done that, I'm good. No, it's a continuum. There's always room for us to grow. And so my prayer is that this, this message will be a reminder uh, to help us move in that direction because prayer is God's path to obtaining his strength, to uh, experiencing his hope and joy and endurance and love. So let's just begin here with, you know, there are lots of books written on prayer. Some of them are really good, and some of them should be burned, okay? So, so read with that in mind. But read biographies of Christian people throughout history. Uh, don't know where to start. Pick up one by George Mueller, uh, his life. Uh, you will be uh, amazed at the power of prayer in his life. His testimony of God's faithfulness will motivate you to pray. So read, bi- read biographies like that. Uh, I'm going to mention some, uh, a few other books more recent. Paul Miller's A Praying Life is very down-to-earth. It's very practical. Uh, he says stuff like this that makes you think. You don't need self-discipline to pray continuously. You just need to be poor in spirit. Right? Think about that. And uh, a message by Miller that sums up the whole book, if you're not a reader, you can watch his sermon on Desiring God's website or or read the thing there, and there's a URL at the bottom of the the sermon handout there. Uh, Donald Whitney's Praying the Bible is an encouraging and practical little book teaching about, what do you think? Praying the Bible. Yeah, it's it's well titled. You know, sometimes you're at a loss to what to pray about. Pray scripture. Pray the commands of Scripture. Pray the promises, the warnings, the prayers of the Bible. You can't go wrong doing that. Uh, Timothy Keller has a book, Prayer, Experiencing Awe and Intimacy with God. Isn't that what we all want? A good little book on prayer. Uh, John Piper has chapters uh, in some of his books about prayer, and, and they're available for free. On his, and, you know, E.M. Bounds and Oswald Chambers and John MacArthur and countless others have good books that are helpful. So, so I'm starting with it just saying... You know, we can learn a lot about prayer. We can learn about prayer as we read others who have struggled with their prayer lives, uh, as we see those who do it well and how they do it. We can learn from that. So, so don't, you know, if you don't, I, I think I have all those books I just mentioned. Some of them are probably on Kindle form. But anyway, if you want to read them, let me know. Our motivation to pray cannot be guilt or legalism. Those are awful motivators. And by legalism, I just mean having that unbiblical standard that we try to follow so we can feel good about having met that standard, okay? That's legalism. I prayed for an hour today, therefore I'm spiritual. Well, not necessarily. And by guilt as a motivator, I mean we often feel guilty because of our lack of prayer. So we determine to pull ourselves up and to force ourselves to pray through a list or pray for a certain length of time thinking it will ease our guilt. It's not a good motivator. God's grace and his mercy in Jesus Christ that he has shown to us is what should motivate us to pray. Because prayer is simply drawing near to our gracious and loving Heavenly Father and speaking with him. So don't let guilt or legalism motivate you. Let God's love and mercy motivate you to pray. So, if you want to be devoted to prayer... Consider often God's mercies. Go back time and time again to the gospel and what God has done. And I've said it before, and I'll say it again. These commands of Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 20, they're built on verses 1 and 2, which we just read, which is built on the foundation of Romans 1 through 11. Have you got that yet? 
I'll, I'll keep saying it because it's good. But it's because of God's many mercies that Paul has spelled out in chapters 1 through 11 that we are able to present our bodies as a living sacrifice to God. It's because of his mercies that we should be eager to draw near to him in prayer. As we saw in Romans 8.32, He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? I mean, if the Father paid the price to save us, and he did, and if the Son is at his right hand interceding for us now, and he is, and if the Holy Spirit is helping us by praying with us with groanings too deep for words, and he is, that should motivate us to pray. Author of Hebrews put it this way, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, what? Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. Why? So that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Do we need God's mercy and grace to live and endure the tribulations of this world? And the answer is yes. We find God's grace and his mercy at the same place we found it when we found it for salvation. It's at God's throne of grace and we must come to him and let his mercy and his love motivate us to pray. To be devoted to prayer, we have to find ourselves delighting in who God is and we do that by reading his word. George Mueller taught this frequently from his own experience. He said, the first great and primary business to which I ought to attend every day is to have my soul happy in the Lord. And Mueller's prayer life was rooted in his reading and his studying and his meditation of God's word. As a matter of fact, when he was 92 years old, he said that for every page of anything else he read, he would read 10 pages of the Bible. Oh, man. No, don't feel guilty. God does not call everyone to that. Uh, during the last 20 years of his life, he would read through the Bible four or five times a year. That's a lot of reading. Am I telling you that we all have to do as George Mueller did? No. I'm telling you, his prayer life was directed by his communion with God through his word. Therefore, don't neglect the Bible. Don't neglect reading the Bible, or your prayers are going to be misdirected. Instead, let the Bible direct your prayers in line with what God has promised, what God has purposed. You use his word to find delight in God each and every day. Maybe you're not reading the Bible much. In your bulletin is a very simple guide to get you started. Uh, it's that yellow-looking thing in there that says five times five times five, I think. With the commitment of five minutes a day, five days a week, you can read through the New Testament this year. And if you tell me you don't have five minutes a day, five days a week to read God's Word, I will call you a liar, okay? Is that okay of me? Everyone has that time. Uh, if you don't have a committed reading plan, start with something like this. It's simple. It's easy. Get into God's Word. If you want to read through the entire Bible this year, there's plans in the back for that. That's a great thing to do, and I applaud those of you that do that. Uh, the point is, if you are not reading God's Word on a consistent basis, how in the world are you going to pray according to His will? Because you don't know what it is, right? It's as we read the Bible, as we spend time with him, that we hear the wisdom of God. We hear the revelation of God. 
And as we partake of his word, it changes us. It has an effect on us. It makes us hungry to know more of God. Can we say with the psalmist, how sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth? If not, the first step is to pray. Nothing fancy, nothing flowery, just God have mercy by your spirit awaken me a desire to read your word, to see what you have to say, that I might have ears to hear it and eyes to see it. And you can pray that for yourself. You can pray that for those in your family. You can pray that for those in the church. You can pray that for our missionary. You can pray that for anyone. Be constant in that prayer. And God will show you more than you ever dreamed him of who he is and what his word has to say to you. To be devoted to prayer, think about your absolute need for God to work in your situation, whatever your situation is. I mean, Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing, and he's right. But as the angel told Mary, nothing will be impossible with God. The angel was right as well. Spurgeon said this, quote, Nothing sets a man more eagerly upon prayer than a deep sense of his need of that which he is seeking at the Lord's hand. In speaking of our Lord's Prayer, Paul Miller puts it this way, if you know that you, like Jesus, can't do life on your own, then prayer makes complete sense. And then he adds, prayer is bringing your helplessness to Jesus. To the extent that we see our need, and to the extent we see God's gracious offer to meet our needs, we will be motivated to pray. So to be devoted to prayer, consider often God's mercies that saved you, that sustain you day by day. Find delight in God himself through his word and through prayer. Think about your absolute need and God's willingness to work in your situation because God does want to work in your situation. So to be devoted to prayer, realize what God can do through prayer. We take it, uh, we don't understand. We, we, take, uh, we have such a small view of our God and what he can do. We need to have a much bigger view. James 5 says, the effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish nothing. Just seeing if you're awake. Can accomplish much. To be effective, we must come to God as clean vessels seeking to please him in all respects. Yes, we, sh we must confess our sins. Psalm 66, if I regard wickedness in my heart, the Lord will not hear me, right? So confess our sins. James 4 points out one reason for unanswered prayer, one that we're probably guilty of more than we like to admit. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, so that you may spend it on your pleasures. But I love this verse from Psalm 81. I, the Lord, am your God, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. Open your mouth wide, and I will fill it. What a beautiful picture. God works through prayer. He wants to answer our prayers. He works through the prayers of his people. And do I understand how this fits in with his sovereignty and foreknowledge? No, of course, I don't understand it all. But I know that he wants us to pray and that he answers our prayers and that he works through our prayers. And yes, sometimes we don't see the results of our prayers immediately. Sometimes we're not going to see the results until we're in heaven. But if we're seeking God's glory and the furtherance of his kingdom, he can and will do mighty things through the prayers of his people. The God who has poured out his mercies on us in salvation is not going to abandon us in our trials and tribulations, no. So as the psalmist exhorts, trust in him at all times, O people, pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Okay. 
So we've gone quickly through persevering in tribulation and being devoted to prayer. So how can we put this verse into practice in our lives? Well, I think, first of all, we need to evaluate ourselves in light of the phrases, these three phrases in verse 12. Are you grumbling in anger and depression and bitterness and cynicism? If so, you're not rejoicing in hope. Are you giving up or despairing in your trials? If so, you're not persevering in tribulation. Are you taking every solution the world has to offer to get out of your trials? You're not being devoted to prayer. We cannot begin to grow in these qualities until we honestly evaluate where we are falling short. So do that this week. Just look at those three phrases and evaluate where you are in them. Uh, Focus intentionally each and every day on the hope that you have in the gospel of Jesus Christ. I mean, even if your life is busy and hectic, even if you have small children demanding your attention, you can still direct your thoughts to the mercies of God that saved you from your sins throughout the day. You can focus your mind on the hope of the glory of God that you're going to share when Christ returns. You can spend time in God's presence through his word. You can bring all your needs before him, knowing that he's your loving, all-powerful creator and father. It doesn't matter how busy you are, you have time to do that. Maybe you need to put some of God's promises on a three-by-five card or a post-it and keep it on your mirror or on your, uh, I was going to say on your windshield. No, I don't recommend that. That's probably not a good idea. But, you know, the promises of God, have you searched scripture to find them? Uh, Here's one that I love. Ah, Lord God, behold, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too difficult for you. Isn't that good? I mean, we get so focused on our trial and tribulation, we think, man, this is, uh, God can't help me. uh, Yes, he can. Nothing is too difficult for God. There are hundreds of wonderful promises throughout the Bible. Find them, search them out, meditate on them, pray them back to God. And don't try to do all this alone. I mean, you are part of the body of Christ. We are one body. Uh, The Lord intends for you to share your burdens with others. So get involved at church. Uh, Attend a growth group. Meet with Christian friends who will pray with you and for you. God's many mercies call us to be rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer. And make it your prayer throughout 2017 that we would be a prayerful, persevering, joyful church known as ABC. And it starts with each one of us as individuals. So a few closing questions. You know, Romans 12 begins talking about love. So let me ask you, how are you going to love people in this coming year? How are you going to let your light shine that men may see your good deeds and give glory to your Father in heaven? What plans do you have for that? I'll give you the answer that Paul gives by patiently enduring tribulation. How are you going to have strength to endure when things get really rough this year? How are are you going to endure and persevere when you're tempted to withdraw and just nurse your pain by yourself? By the joy of the Lord. Rejoicing in hope. How will you sustain joy in the midst of your tribulations? The answer is by letting the tribulation drive you closer to God himself. How will you, a sinner, assaulted daily with ungodly desires, uh, having cravings, selfish cravings for for approval and, and being pressured from all sides by the world, how will you awaken and sustain your hope in God? 
What will you do to keep Christ first and foremost in your life? What will you do to make your heart see him and see that your heavenly inheritance in him is much more precious than the pleasures of sin? And the answer to that question is you will pray and pray and pray and pray because you're devoted to it. A Christian who loves without hypocrisy, who hates evil, who sticks to what is good, will be tenderly affectionate to other believers and humbly seek to honor them rather than to be honored himself. That Christian service to Jesus will be wholehearted and zealous. And yes, I'm going through Romans 12 here. Hopefully you got that. As a result, trials and tribulations will appear, but they'll be overcome by a strong hope of a future glory, a reward based on God's promises to us. And that hope allows you to endure everything you encounter as you constantly commit yourself and all you do to the care of your Lord through prayer. That's the way to live the Christian life. And Paul sums it all up right there in verses 9, 10, 11, and 12. And may these verses describe each one of us more and more in the year ahead of us. Why? So we can pat ourselves on the back? No so that others might see God in us and be drawn to him, and thus he is glorified. Let's bow together in prayer as the men come for communion. Father, we do thank you once again for your word. We thank you that you have revealed yourself to us in it, that you have given us the standard that you expect of your children. Father, we don't know what the year ahead holds for any one of us, but we know that you do. And without a doubt, there will be suffering, there will be tribulations and trials. And it's our prayer that we would persevere through them, knowing that you have a purpose and a plan in them. Uh, Father, oftentimes that plan is to drive us to our knees so that we might spend time with you. Father, we pray that we would be people of prayer, that we would be devoted to it uh, day in and day out. Uh, Father, that we might draw closer to you, that we might hear from you and understand what you have for each one of us. So teach us this year, speak to us, that we might be conformed to the image of Christ more and more. And we pray these things in his name.